Looks like a good episode, sir. Shall I take her in? Come down at the edge of that ridge. Let me disembark with my men. You can track her out to that episode from here. We'll have a look at that rock. Aye. In case of trouble, save the project file. We'll lift in the thopters. Aye, sir. That's, that's good advice. <laughs> Command S. Command S. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Gam Jabbar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name is Leo. And my name's Abu. And today we are at the penultimate episode, are you kidding me, of our book club. <laughs> oh, gosh, that's that's what a steersman would say. We're going to turn left soon, right into that final episode. That's wild. Yes. Oh, my gosh, Leo, the penultimate episode. Yeah. We are so close to the end of the book. It's today and one more, and we will have completed the entire first novel. It's been a wild journey. All of the whole Dune? All of it. Well, Whoa. the first one. Uh, the first of six incredible <laughs> books. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And what a journey it's been. Yeah. As a reminder, for the past couple of weeks, we have been going through the entire first novel, a hundred pages at a time, in spoiler-free fashion, diving deep into the sands of Dune, exploring the main plot points and really picking apart the tiny, easy-to-miss details that make this world so rich and so wonderful, and ultimately talking about the things that we love about Dune and the universe and this series. Yeah, and we've been doing this alongside so many of our listeners who are reading along and yeah. sending us messages, and it's been so much fun to hear from y'all. So if you have thoughts, feelings, questions, uh, other things about this episode, <laughs> email us. It's the same email address, gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. We always love to hear from you folks. All righty. Final reminder for housekeeping. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, these book club episodes have been no spoiler, and today is exactly the same. We will not be talking about anything beyond the pages covered thus far. Indeed. Now, before we get into the meat and potatoes of today's episode and break down the chapters that we read for today, yeah. we didn't do a mailbag in the last book club episode, and we promised we would this time around. So let's answer some questions. Absolutely. Our first comes from Thomas Leaf via email. Baron Harkonnen mentions Duke Leto's suicide raid on his melange stockpile. Not much else is said about this. But it seems as though Duke Leto was able to covertly land a strike force on Giddy Prime. But do we have any notion of when and how this took place? Great question. Yeah. And a small, tiny detail in the book that's easy to miss. Totally. So the short answer to Thomas's question here is 
No. No. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, next question. All right, next uh, <laughs> No. No, we should talk about this for 40 minutes because this is Gom Jabbar. No, the longer answer is we know that Thufir had that plan. Like, that was Thufir's plan to kind of cut into some of Baron Harkonnen's savings that were going to be so vital after losing Arrakis. We hear about it very early on in the book. And then later in the book, we learn that the raid was successful. And that's part of why Baron Harkonnen's looking at his coffers like, ah, shit, we're so broke. Damn, (laughs) we have no money. Are you kidding me? So very clearly it was successful. And this is why Raban is ordered to really squeeze Arrakis for all of its profits. But that's kind of it. I mean, we don't really get much else. Unfortunately, the book offers up no more details than just that. Right. Fear had a plan. He executed it secretly in the background. And we know it was successful because the Baron's 401k took a hit. <laughs> right. His retirement plan out of whack. <laughs> that dude is going to be working until he's 90. Yeah. Very millennial of him. <laughs> right. I can relate. I can, very relatable. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next question is also from our guy, Thomas Leaf. Thomas, thank you for the multiple questions snuck into your email. Love that gumption. Amazing. Quote, Lynch's film makes it sound as if the weirding module was what made the Atreides house troops so deadly. There is mention of Duke Leto and Gurney, who definitely fucks, and Duncan <laughs> motherfucking Idaho. I love that the, that is catching on. Those are their names. Crafting, no. <laughs> crafting. if that's our legacy, then by God, I'll we take did it. it. I'll take it. Mission, mission accomplished. <laughs> right. The question continues. Duncan motherfucking Idaho crafting a fighting force that nearly rivals that of the Sardaukar, which is partly why Shaddam wants to depose Leto. And Leto forges this army by training his soldiers with the weirding way, or to be more precise, Prana Bindu body control techniques combined with the weapons training by Idaho and Halleck. My question is, did I get that right? End quote. Uh... Thomas, unfortunately, the short answer there is no. You have a couple of your details mixed up in that in that whole Atreides highly trained troops situation, which is actually a big part of today's book club discussion as well. Yeah, and it's understandable because Lynch's film really throws a weirding wrench into all of this <laughs> machinery. But uh, yeah, to be clear, the Lynch film takes some uh, interesting creative liberties with the weirding way. And Interesting. <laughs> that's one word for it. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, again, I'm pro pugs. The module, the sound gun was like a very strange thing. Yeah. Those modules, those sound weirding modules that are in the Lynch film don't exist in the book. Uh, as far as we know, don't exist in the Dune universe at all. That is purely a David Lynch film creation. And in fact, the weirding way uh, it has nothing to do with the secret fighting force that Leto and Gurney and Duncan have put together. You're correct, Thomas, that this fighting force, trained under Gurney Halleck and Duncan Idaho, both of whom fuck, <laughs> is strong enough to rival the Sardaukar, and that is one of the main reasons why the Emperor wanted to get rid of Leto and get rid of the Atreides. They are becoming a threat against his Sardaukar forces, which right. is awesome. I mean, Duncan Idaho and Gurney are literally two of the most capable fighters in the galaxy. Right. And they were able to train this force that can rival the strongest and most feared fighting force in the galaxy. That's an incredible move. But to be clear, they didn't have to use the weirding way. 
and it had nothing to do with Prana Bindu, both of which are actually strictly Bene Gesserit secret techniques. Right. And very few people outside of the Bene Gesserit order, I guess, first of all, even know about them. And if they do know about them, have been trained to actually use them. Paul is very much an anomaly because of his mother. Yes. The idea of Atreidian troops being trained under the Weirding Way or having Weirding modules, wholly a David Lynch introduction. Right. For better or for ill. <laughs> Maybe sometimes the latter. <laughs> the next up, we have an email from John Taylor. And John Taylor says, quote, I don't have a Dune question for you, but I was wondering, what other sci-fi or fantasy books do you guys like besides Dune? Have you read the Three Body Problem trilogy? It's totally different from Dune, but it may be my second favorite behind Dune. End quote. What a fun question. <laughs> I, I love this. I mean, we don't have to just talk about Dune all the time, right? Like, we, we have lives outside of, we have very small lives outside of Tom Jabbar. <laughs> smaller and, Dune, and smaller so. every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the answer to John's question here is, yes, I have read other sci-fi and fantasy. That's actually my favorite genre. And uh, I've been reading sci-fi and fantasy ever since I got my very first library card as a kid. Nice. Shouts to Arthur, RIP, having fun isn't hard when you've got a library card. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Can we get the deep lore cut explanation of that whole <laughs> chapter in this life? <laughs> So first of all, yes, I have read The Three-Body Problem. I haven't read the whole trilogy. I read the first book, and I didn't like it, mm. which is maybe a bit of a controversial take because I know it's a very popular book. It's a very renowned sci-fi book. I didn't like Three-Body Problem, so I wasn't too gung-ho on reading the rest of the trilogy. John, send me a follow-up email if you think I should try the second and third book and if they'll maybe change my opinion on the trilogy. Some other sci-fi that I've been reading, I actually just recently finished the Foundation books, or at least the original six. I liked the first three. I thought they were cohesive and great and wonderful, and many of the themes actually align <laughs> with a lot of what we talk about here on Gam Jabbar yeah. and the messages in Dune. I didn't like the final two books of Foundation. I think they sucked. I don't know if that's a controversial opinion, but... Foundation was good, and then it wasn't, is my hot take on that. And to quickly breeze through some other books I've read over the past year, I loved Exhalation by Ted Chang, a sci-fi short story collection. Amazing stuff. Definitely check it out. Highly recommend. I've also been reading a lot of Star Wars. I read through the Thrawn trilogy, and I also read Light of the Jedi. I'm a Star Wars nerd. I liked both books. A lot of cool world building in that, and Thrawn is such a cool character. And finally, what I'm reading right now, actually, in between these Dune Book Club episodes, <laughs> I actually do try to juggle multiple books, which is a mess. But <laughs> as we've been doing these Dune Book Club episodes, obviously, I'm rereading Dune at the moment. But I'm also currently reading The Space Between Worlds by Micaiah Johnson. I think I'm saying her name right. And I'm really enjoying it. It's a story about jumping through parallel universes, and I'm only about a third of the way through it. But it sets up a lot of interesting questions and philosophical ideas and themes and, uh, you know, big, big picture things that sci-fi always tackles, like fate and destiny and how we end up where we are because of our choices. So wow. I love it. Yeah. And I loved this question. John and the rest of our listeners, send me your book recommendations. Sci-fi fantasy. I love it all. What about you, Leo? What have you been uh, reading besides Dune lately? 
So I'm glad you phrased the question that way because <laughs> the answer is not really anything. <laughs> I, I gotta be honest with y'all. I am such a simple-minded dude. No. Getting it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Would a simple-minded dude come up with the words spicy, thick boy? <laughs> okay, I a moment of brilliance. So. That was a moment of brilliance <laughs> in an otherwise mundane life. No, I I knew going into Dune that there was so much, you know, starting this podcast and and in general, just trying to be that sponge for Dune lore and understanding the world. I really don't trust my... my brain to i couldn't remember the word brain i really don't trust my brain <laughs> to keep different universes straight you know and the last thing in the world that i would want to do is be like oh yeah playlaxu face dancers were on that planet and then i name drop a planet that's from some other <laughs> series <laughs> yeah, and right. i know that would happen so for the last two years i basically have just been reading and rereading the dune titles but again, that's kind of a boring answer. <laughs> it's probably exactly what John didn't want to hear. So I will <laughs> name drop some other series that I really loved in sci-fi and fantasy. One of the most recent books that I read sci-fi-wise, just as a standalone reading experience, was Artemis by Andy Weir. Mm. After The Martian, I loved Artemis. Like I know it's not everybody's cup of tea, but his attempt to tackle some very real <laughs> problems of like, how do you weld on the moon. It's just fascinating. And I love the way he writes it. Also, there are some really great characters that I yeah. found were representative of, you know, LGBTQ and different religions and ethnicities without being too virtue signally, which was great. The King Killer Chronicles, Patrick Rothfuss is dope. Kvoth is the best boy. And I cannot wait for the third book. I uh, read everything that Haruki Murakami writes because that man is awesome i recently read this is actually the one exception to dune because i i knew that it wouldn't really confuse me was my first terry pratchett book which i feel like is an embarrassing ad admittance <laughs> i haven't ever read terry pratchett and a friend offended that it had taken me this long recommended i start with guards guards and i'm so hooked i haven't read like fantasy farce before but it's so funny and so good so that's me. Mostly Dune, occasionally other things, but really it's mostly Dune these days. Love it. I mean, that's our brain at this point, right? Right. Our, our lives are mostly Dune, occasionally other things. <laughs> okay, let's wrap up today's mailbag. One final email from Ronald McInnes, who has written us before, longtime listener of Gamjabar. Shouts to Ronald. And this is less a question and more a commentary on today's reading, which we always love to get. We don't always have to get questions. We love to hear your thoughts as well. Yeah, totally. So Ronald read today's pages, and this is what he had to say. Quote, sped through these pages. Fremen are so damn awesome. Hell yeah. <laughs> I wish they weren't so hung up by their religion, though. Mm, yeah, I agree yeah. there. Yeah. I love that not only do they ride sandworms, but also breed them. I thought they just looted nests or something. So do you think they'll deepfake Alia the Strange in the movie or just make her older? I love that Gurney definitely fucks Halleck is back. That is so <laughs> catching on. We're making it a thing. It's so good. To fear playing Baron and Fade Ratha against each other is great. Thanks for starting the book club. To be honest, I had started reading Dune way back in December. It was a gift for my wife, but we had our own desert mouse, so I had to put the book down. You both started reading, and once you were where I was, I started reading again. 
I took her to the IMAX preview. Oh, hell yeah. We're both definitely on the golden path. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Amazing email. Thank you, Ronald. That was a stream of consciousness, my guy, and I loved it. Yeah, so good. <laughs> oh, my God. And also, you know, I hear, Leo, I don't know if this is true, mm. but couples who read Dune together stay together. It's called the test of the Gamjabar. <laughs> <laughs> you see if that if that uh, relationship has legs. You know, I, I will say very quickly, read the Alia point. I think that's a good question. When we first meet Alia, she's two. <laughs> Deepfakes are getting like so good. Just as a technology, they're getting very, very good. But if you look at like Villeneuve's track record, he doesn't really seem inclined to lean heavily on VFX as like the driving element of scenes. So uh, personally, my speculation is that they'll probably age her up. I, again, it's what Winch did. I think it's what they did in the miniseries. It's just, it's one of the few things that on the page works really well, but on camera or on the screen would just be so distracting from the narrative to be like, yeah. that's an adult talking baby. What's happening? Very strange. Yeah, they, they can still make her young and come off as extremely mature, you know? Right. But they don't have to make her a literal baby. <laughs> they should cast Sting. <laughs> I mean, listen, <laughs> hear me out. <laughs> the, <laughs> a Dune movie, Sting is every character. <laughs> we, we, do, we do that Lindsay Lohan thing where we shoot every scene twice. Yeah. And Sting plays every character. I mean, Paul Rudd figured it out with, with was it Living With Myself, that, that great <laughs> yeah, little yeah, miniseries? Yeah, yeah. That was great, yeah. <laughs> he was test driving that technology for Sting to play every character in Dune. So we're almost right. there, folks. <laughs> the perfect casting. No one no one at us about that. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Ronald, thank you for the great email and the wonderful observations about today's reading. Indeed. So glad you're reading along with us and keep sending us those emails, everyone. Hell yeah. Now that all of that is out of the way, let's get into this episode's reading, which was, again, from page 604 to 688. We're going to start off with a summary of the plot points before we get into the of fun spice morsels. So, starting off, chapter 39. We start this chapter off with our boy, Thufir Hawad. Hey. How's he been? We haven't seen him in ages. Two years. Two whole years since that time skip in the previous chapter. Yeah. Here in chapter 39, Thufir is having a lovely, casual, not at all tense <laughs> conversation with the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, who is his captor at this point and is poisoning him. Yeah. <laughs> From this conversation, we learn that there is a lot of secrecy around the Sardaukar, these troops that we have heard about in this entire book that played a pivotal role in the attack on Arrakis alongside the Harkonnens. Right. We realize that people in this empire don't know a whole lot about them, actually. But the fear has picked up on some clues and connected some dots. And a lot of this conversation centers around the realization that the Sardaukar troops are from Seleucus Secundus, a prison planet that the emperor really discourages everyone asking questions about. Right. <laughs> Don't bring that up in the press briefing. He's going to walk out. Right. right. <laughs> we agreed not to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> throws exactly. his mic down, leaves, uh, gets all over Twitter. Exactly. Uh, classic Shaddam, man. Classic <laughs> Shaddam. 
So Seleucus Secundus is the emperor's prison planet. That's sort of an open secret, like as much as the emperor discourages questions about the planet, everyone kind of knows like, uh, yeah, prison planet, whatever. It also happens to be one of the harshest planets in the universe. We're going to get more into that later in the takeaways. Right. And as the fear tells the Baron here, it also turns out that this planet is used as a sort of proving grounds for some of the most strongest and most resilient prisoners that end up there. And then these folks are indoctrinated into the Sardaukar, into the most feared fighting force in the Empire at this time. Right. The fear's chat with the Baron continues, and the Baron is basically consulting the fear as a mentat, right? He's using the fear as the tool he is meant to be. But at the same time, the Baron is like unwilling to hear what the fear has to say. <laughs> like, the fear's like, yo, computer. I'm dropping facts. <laughs> yeah. Right. He's like arguing with his MacBook. <laughs> and it's like, the fear's dropping facts on you, my guy. You better listen. He's talking truth about Seleucus Secundus and the Sardaukar. And during this conversation, the Fremen once again come up. And once again, the Baron is like, the Fremen, no. 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 What? No. What? insignificant no they're nothing guys they're nothing <laughs> this really has the energy of putting in directions on the phone and then going uh, i know a better way and then getting stuck yes in traffic. oh my gosh <laughs> oh my god the the ultimate gps dad energy yeah. in the room from the baron yeah i know a faster way i know a fa- i can't believe it's taking me to the expressway <laughs> what do you mean this road is closed <laughs> yeah you haven't been on this planet for 40 years <laughs> what are you talking yeah. about so, again, Thufir is bringing up the red flag of the Fremen being stronger than anyone suspected. Then the conversation continues because the Baron is just like, ugh, so over these Fremen. And we learn that the Baron is also woefully uninformed about why the whole Arrakis affair even happened. Yeah. Right? To the Baron, this was an attack on the Atreides. This was a political move. He doesn't realize the true motives of the emperor. Why would the emperor send his Sardaukar to help the Arconans? Why would he ally himself with the Baron? Right. Thufir also drops some more truth on the Baron about this. It turns out that Gurney Halleck and Duncan Idaho had been training a small band of like SEAL Team 6 House Atreides troops that were so effective that they could rival the Sardaukar in combat. Yeah. Again, the Sardaukar are considered the strongest fighters in the universe. And if not the strongest, certainly the most feared and the most fearsome. And here's House Atreides un- under these two incredibly legendary fighters. And lovers. Troops. And lovers. <laughs> and lovers. Look, Gurney Halleck and Duncan Haido in the sheets, man. No one fears her. Right. <laughs> They're training House Atreides troops that could stand up to the Sardaukar. That is a huge red flag to the Emperor. And that turns out to be the reason that Emperor Shaddam wanted to wipe out Duke Leto and to wipe out House Atreides, or at least cripple House Atreides. This was a threat against his might, a threat against his Sardaukar. Now, in hindsight, a lot of this really does make sense to us as the reader, but the Baron blindsided. My guy's like, what? <laughs> what? Just blown away. <laughs> this crazy. That's great. That's impossible. It's impossible. (laughs) That's a deep cut binge mode joke for my binge heads out there. Shouts to (laughs) Mal and Jason. 
Uh, love them. All right, continuing with this chapter. Despite the Baron's stubbornness in all of this, right? He is basically refusing to believe everything the MacBook is telling him, which is silly, because <laughs> yeah. the MacBook is just doing what it does best, the fear Hawat being a man's hat. The fear eventually does get the Baron to understand what's at stake here, and that there's a lot more at play than the Baron clearly realized when it comes to the Fremen, the Sardaukar, and the Emperor's motivations. And Tafir offers a solution. He either needs to wipe out every single Fremen on the planet, something that Raban has already been struggling with, or he has to abandon Beast Raban and allow him to fail on Arrakis so that the Baron can come in and save the day. Right. And this is such a brilliant stroke. Yeah. Remember in the last book club episode, we talked about how Thufir is out here playing 4D chess, right? He's pitting <laughs> yeah. the Harkonnens against each other. In the last chapter, he pit Fade Rotha and Baron Harkonnen against each other. And here, he's doing the same between the Baron and Beast Raban. He's saying, you have no options. It's a brilliant way for Thufir to pit, once again, Harkonnen against Harkonnen. Genius stuff from Thufir here. Yeah, totally. At the same time, though, I do want to just point out that we don't want to give Thufir too much credit here because he doesn't necessarily have the Baron completely duped. Right. The Baron is fully aware that Thufir is playing his own games. There's a great quote. Quote, the Baron smiled, and behind his smile, he asked himself, now how does this fit in with Hawat's personal scheming? End quote. I love that. That's great. Love it. A lot of games being played back and forth here. Plans within plans. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, let's round out this chapter. So the game plan going forward is that the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen will abandon Beast Raban. He realizes he has no other choice but to do that. Raban will respond by basically squeezing Arrakis harder and harder, subjugating the populace even more and more until they are basically unable to stand him. Right. And then this will be the Baron's excuse to transition power and replace him with Fade Ratha, which was actually his original plan. So even Thufir's proposed plan falls in line with what the Baron wanted. Okay, so chapter 39 ends with <laughs> a reminder <laughs> right. that Thufir Hawat is still fucking pissed <laughs> at Jessica, who he's still two years later thinks is the traitor against House Atreides. Again, Mentats, man. Bad data in, bad data out. Yeah, much like my digestive system. Bad tacos in, <laughs> bad data out, folks. <laughs> so we call it now? Data deposit? <laughs> some transfer speed on that. Anyway, we are into chapter 40. We rejoin Paul, our sweet baby boy Paul. For the first time since the time skip and folks... He's not so much of a baby boy anymore. He has grown shockingly. It's, it's a lot, but we actually start this chapter so confused. This is probably some of the most confusing writing in Dune because Paul is, at the moment that we join him, coming out of a time trance. You know, he's coming out of one of these prescient dreams and is really trying to figure out where he is. He's like remembering things that haven't happened yet. He's having new prescient visions of new future events it's complicated <laughs> time is complicated and when you can remember forward to things that haven't happened yet as memories lord 
I am not envious of his prescient state of being. Now, before we get to what exactly he's doing, you know, as he's coming out of this dream, as he's waking up, we do learn kind of what's been going on in his life. We get kind of a series of flashbacks or memories as we come to understand them. And he's been up to a lot. It's been a busy two years. Let's catch up with him. So Paul and Chani, power couple of the century, are a power couple. They're together now. And guess what, y'all? There's a new Atreides in the house. They had a kid. And uh, he was named Leto, which is great. Leto too. Cute. Adorable. And sweet baby Leto too is in the deep south with Jessica. Paul's sister has been born, but is super, super strange. And we'll talk about her in the uh, in the takeaways. But very briefly, we learn that Jessica going through the spice agony with Alia still in the womb permanently changed her. Now, as his following has grown, Paul has been training the Fremen in weirding combat and also doing some fighting himself. In a very casual sentence, we find out that he raided the Arakin Palace to recover the <laughs> remains of, you know, his Atreides men. And he actually rescued his father's skull, enshrining it and kind of putting him to rest finally, which... Man, I forgot this detail. I've read this book so many times and I always forget <laughs> that he does this. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a little bit wild. And it's also that one sentence could be such a good short story. Yeah. We also learned that after joining the Fremen, a bunch of people basically started regularly just challenging him to knife fights. <laughs> They're like, <laughs> you're the main character, huh? Yeah, you sure? All right, let's go. Like pulling a Jameis, right? Yeah. And Paul just has to keep killing him. <laughs> like, right. that's just part of his life now. Ugh, another knife fight before breakfast. <sighs> just, Awful. Oh, God, I haven't even had my coffee yet, and I've got to <laughs> kill this asshole. <sighs> All right. Uh, but listen, we're a fan of Chani. We here are fans of Chani. And we find out that she's 100% relationship goals because she decides, you know what, enough is enough. So she steps in, and this is great. We see this as a little memory. Paul's like, there was a, what? There was a knife fight in the hallway? So he runs out, and Johnny's like, yeah, I fucking killed a guy because uh, he was like trying to fight you, and he was a waste of your time. So I, I took care of him. And at first, Paul's like, oh, come on, man. Like, let me fight my own fights. And she's like, no, you idiot. (laughs) Shut up. If they are worried about, you know, being shamefully killed by Muad'Dib's woman, which are her words, they're not going to come for you. You know, they want to fight the prophet. They're going to get killed at the door. They're not going to come. And Paul's like, I don't know if you're right. And she's totally right, (laughs) which is, oh, gosh, if that's not relationship goals, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I don't know what it is. Yeah. It's it's like the now there's a mini boss before the boss boss, you know? Yeah. And like, the mini boss get is through just as lethal. <laughs> right. Right. Somehow the mini boss is just as strong. You're like, the fuck? Who made this game? <laughs> this is bad game design. <laughs> <laughs> it sucks. And there's no continue. And if I, oh, okay, maybe I just won't play. <laughs> right. It's an optional exactly. side boss that is totally unnecessary. Yeah. It's a brilliant move by Chani and shows that she's really actively at Paul's side, making decisions, being an active participant in his life and making sure he's safe and making sure he's taken care of. It's awesome. We also learn a little bit about Paul and Jessica's relationship 
and how it's evolved over the last couple of years. So it is uh, clear that his mother is uncomfortable with the growing legend and kind of religious fervor around Paul. She even is like quoting Benny Gesserit proverbs at him, <laughs> which has got to be the best feeling in the it's world. It's like when my mom texts me like religious Quran verses. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure you love it. I'm sure you absolutely I love, love it. it. The best. Yeah, or sends me like YouTube videos of sermons. <laughs> very helpful thank you wow thank you yeah I haven't had yeah, my it's coffee okay. yet you know what more power to my mom she's trying to save my soul hey you know it's what all good that's the perspective that matters and actually to your <laughs> kind of to your point jessica has only the best intentions for her son right right she loves him and this is what she knows and was raised with so she's saying here's a quote quote when religion and politics travel in the same cart the writers believe nothing can stand in their way their movement becomes headlong, faster and faster and faster. They put aside all thought of obstacles and forget that a precipice does not show itself to the man in a blind rush until it's too late. End quote. Uh, I love it. It's a great quote. Great, great proverb. Yeah, great yeah. proverb as far as proverbs go. Totally. But Paul, uh, not exactly what I would call blind, <laughs> uh, does make the argument, you know, religion is what binds the Fremen people. And it's part of what makes them so strong. And lest we not forget, he's literally doing <laughs> what this. Jessica taught him. <laughs> she's like, <Yes. laughs> he's like, oh, come on, I'm doing the thing you taught me to do. Like someone who is part of the Missionaria Protectiva is like lecturing from a high horse. Yeah. Come on, mom. Get out of here. I'm yeah, the chosen one. We need to remember one. where these Benny Gesserit proverbs are coming from. Right. It's because they're they're also doing a lot of religious and political tampering in the galaxy. That's like <laughs> 80% of what they do. He's like, yeah. I'm the byproduct of 50,000 years of breeding programs. Come on, mom. <laughs> this is yeah. dumb. Yeah. I, I do love how he calls her out on her bullshit a bit here. Oh, it's so cathartic. It's clear that their relationship has soured somewhat, you know. She is my enemy it was a good foreshadowing of two years of conversations that they've had. And she has some major reservations about his marriage to Chani. You know, she's thinking in galactic imperial terms, how useful is it for this Duke to be married to a Fremen woman, you know? Yeah, she, she's thinking in political terms here. Is Chani, who is just a, this Fremen commoner, at least in the eyes of the Empire, Right. Is she a good match? Is she a good duchess for the Duke? I mean, Paul is royalty. Yeah, no kidding. But that brings us to today, to current time Paul Wadib Atreides. He is about to go through kind of his quinceanera. He's about to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he, which is funny, too, because this is something that Fremen kids do at like 12, and he's now right. almost 20. And he has to ride on a sandworm. He's got to do it on his own to be anointed a full Fremen. You know, he's thinking this whole time. Yeah, I'm respected. Everybody sees me as this prophet, but they're still seeing me as an off-worlder who is now part of the Fremen ways. Right. I need to, for my safety and for Shani's safety and for everything, I need to be a Fremen. And to be considered a Fremen, I have to be able to ride a sandworm by myself. It's also worth noting, today is yet another decision nexus. <laughs> this is... Love him. Love him. Paul's like, damn it. 
I can't see what's going to happen today, and I could die in so many ways. Yeah. I, I will point out that this particular decision nexus seems to phase him less than the previous decision nexuses did, right? That yeah. fight with Jameis, that flight in the ornithopter where he didn't know what was coming next. He was kind of panicked. Right. In this, I'm sensing he's just sort of accepting it as fact, right? I'm in a decision nexus. I've seen the ways that this worm, this thick desert spicy boy <laughs> right. could crush me yeah. and I could fail the test. <laughs> and I've also seen the ways in which I could conquer it and ride it successfully and pass the test. And it is what it is. He's kind of, again, over these two years, I'm sure he's practiced his prescience quite a bit. Right. And it's interesting to note that he's less completely thrown off by it. Like in the Jameis fight, he was panicked, right? Yeah, he just couldn't totally. stop imagining the visions of him dead with knife wounds. <laughs> right, right. And here, there's really only like one sentence where he says like, oh, yeah, I did see a vision where the worm kills me. Right. And then he moves on and focuses. So it's it's cool to see that he's sort of grown within his powers as well. That's such a good point. Now, Stilgar rolls up and basically begins the ritual, but also like as a kind of an adorable aside as his friend. Yeah. Is like, Psst, hey, don't. I mean, listen, tempting. I know. Do a handstand on the on the worm like, you know, backflip, <laughs> backflip off shotgun, a can of Sappho juice. I get it. It's it would be so dope. But you've already impressed everyone. Just play it safe. Get it done. You know, and Paul's like, yeah, I got you. I'm going to do my best not to die. Thank you, Stilgar. Right. And he is finally alone on a dune and prepares himself mentally for what he's going to do. Then he drops that sick beat, y'all. He summons a worm that just got to come when he mm -hmm. hears a great beat. Now, he has a moment where he's going, I know that these spicy boys can get pretty thick, right? I know that they can be double C dare I say, triple C thick. Right. God, I hope this one isn't too thick. And then from the Southeast, the thickest <laughs> worm, <laughs> just the biggest spicy boy Paul had ever. Quadruple C. <laughs> quadruples, the legendary four C's. <laughs> bigger than anything he'd heard of. And he, just to be clear, estimates it in just a sentence as, quote, more than half a league long. End quote. Yikes. I want to drive home here the unbelievable significance of this sentence. And this is stunning. This is something that I totally missed. I'm like, yeah, it's the biggest. Sure. But let's talk about how big this is really quickly. The encyclopedia says larger male specimens of sandworms reached lengths exceeding 400 meters, which is, while it's kind of vague, does give us a ballpark, right? 400 meters is the sort of, that is when they are considered large, right? A league is, as I found out, unfortunately, not really a universal measurement. So it is a little bit hard to say how big a league is. But Frank wrote this as an American in the 60s. And in American English, a league is most commonly defined as three miles. So more than half a league long, that is more than 1.5 miles which oh my God. is 2,400 meters. <laughs> this worm that rolls, you know, comes gyrating out of the desert, dancing to that sick thumper beat, is six times bigger than uh, large sandworms. 
Oh my god! At least, because Paul's like eyeballing it. He's like, "Oh shit, <laughs> that's a oh <laughs> hmm. okay. Well, that that sucks." And so he thinks. He thinks to himself, "Quote." This is nothing I have seen by vision or in life, end quote. Uh, oh, my gosh. I'd also like to add, he's probably also thinking, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. Like, <laughs> this is, uh, it's huge. Six times That's bigger. enormous. <laughs> it's wild. A mile and a half long. Oh, my Lord. And guys, I'm starting to think as this chapter ends, I'm starting to feel like maybe Paul's the main character. <laughs> Oh my god. It's tempting to think that it's hurrah or, you know, <laughs> foofier, but I think Paul this Paul guy might be pretty significant. Yeah, I think you're onto something. <laughs> All righty, jumping forward to chapter 41. We join Jessica in the deep south. Yeah. In the siege stronghold. She is fully settled in by this point as the tribes reverend mother she has been for the past two plus years Mm -hmm. and as she sits here she is marveling at how the fremen communities partially through the spice orgies partially through their high spice diets have this almost shared consciousness right in this scene she thinks to herself hmm i'd love some spice coffee zip zap boom spice (laughs) coffee arrives yeah Someone reaches through the curtains of her room and drops off some spiced coffee from the celebration happening nearby. That level of sort of shared consciousness is prevalent in these siege communities within these Fremen tribes. Right. While she's also sipping on this yummy, yummy spiced coffee, we talked about the recipe in a previous book club episode. (laughs) Try making some at home, folks. It's great. She's also being a classic mother, right? She realizes that Paul is probably out and about and about to take his worm rider test and she's worried about him she's like i hope the hope the worm isn't more than half a leak long <laughs> <laughs> right sure would I be hope a it's one of those small ones you know 200 200 <laughs> meters easy peasy yeah nope <laughs> <laughs> now hara brings alia into the room and it's because alia did something weird again Ugh, typical we learned that alia snuck in and watched The birth of a baby, which turns out is the celebration that was happening nearby. And the baby was crying, as newborns do. So Alia walks up to it and touches the baby, and the baby instantly falls silent and stops crying. It's objectively scary. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's sort of creepy enough as it is. But (laughs) in addition to touching and silencing this crying newborn, she also makes a comment about how the newborn child looks like another child that she knows about. That was born on Bella Tagoose. Yeah. But wait, we talked about the Zensuni Wanderers and the Fremen history in the previous book club episode. The Fremen haven't been on Bella Tagoose in generations. Thousands of years. Yeah. Nobody should know what anyone on Bella Tagoose looked like at that time. Alia does because of her alterations, which we'll talk about in the takeaways. So this obviously like creeps everyone the fuck out. So Hara, <laughs> right. Hara brings Alia back into the room with, with her mom. We also learn in this conversation with Hara and Alia and Jessica that the plan seemingly is to unite all the Fremen tribes under Paul Wadib, right? His legend has grown so large at this point that people are expecting him to rise to power, to be the new leader of the Fremen. Now, a bit of a snag in the plan that Hara brings up is... 
Alia. Right. People fear Alia. She is a little toddler that's walking around talking and acting like a wise old woman. Right. Right. And that's creeping people out. And Hara worries that the community's fear of Alia could also endanger Paul's rule or Paul's future rule or these plans that they have in place. So they got to do something about it. And Alia agrees. She recognizes the need to try and win over the Fremen and allay their fears of her. So they decide that Hara will act as diplomat, right? Hara is Fremen through and through. And she loves Alia without a doubt. Yes. Yeah. And so Hara can be sort of the liaison between understanding and loving Alia and accepting her for who she is and all her weird toddler wisdom and <laughs> and the Fremen who think that she is a demon child. Right. Hara will sort of advocate for Alia in this and convince the Fremen. And that's the game plan that they come up with here. We then see a ceremony of remembering as it passes by where the Fremen intone their history and talk about basically all of the things we talked about in that takeaway section from the last book club episode about their forceful relocations from planet to planet and their painful past. Right. And this ceremony ends with just this gut-wrenching, just chilling line from Hara. She says, quote, we will never forgive and we will never forget. End quote. Oh my God. Ugh. Chills. It's crazy. Chills. Yeah. At this moment, Tharthar, one of Stilgar's wives, shows up in the room, and she tells everyone that there are a young group of Fremen who are going to go out and meet Usul, Paul Atreides, Paul Modib. Right. And these young Fremen are basically going to force his hand in challenging Stilgar. They are restless. They are ready for new leadership. They believe in Paul's legend. So we realize that a tense situation is starting to build up in the tribe here. Things are boiling here and it's getting to a tipping point. This chapter then ends with Hara suggesting that Jessica should team up with Chani and maybe be a little more open-minded about Paul's partner, about Paul's wife and the mother of Paul's child. Hara, an absolute MVP in this chapter, doing the most, helping out Alia looking after Chani and Paul, taking care of Jessica, credit where credit is due. She is out here trying to convince Jessica that Chani is someone that she should be open-minded about. A super cool conversation that ends on a bit of an awkward note where Jessica <laughs> is still kind of like, oh, I don't know. And then Hara quickly changes the subject, which I thought was kind of funny. Yeah, dirty ass rugs. <laughs> yeah. When's the last time you sweeped in here, Reverend Mother? <laughs> you have all those other memories you don't know how to clean a room? Jesus. <laughs> You have a long ancestral history of not cleaning rugs, apparently. Yeah. No offense, but Reverend Mother Romalo, <laughs> her bedroom is always clean. Yeah. What are you doing different? Chapter 42. We're back with Paul, baby. He successfully hooks the mile and a half long worm. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it rolls and he ends up on top. This is the way it's done. Uh, he turns it and everybody jumps on, jumps on board climbs aboard the biggest worm any of them have seen or heard of. Now, immediately, Stilgar's like, eh, that was all right. <laughs> yes. That was, that was all right. We have 12-year-olds who do better. <laughs> yeah, oof. But, you know, he's doing this out of love. And Paul, after, like, quieting a moment of like, oh, come on, man, 
takes the feedback well. He's like, you know what? He's right. I shouldn't get cocky. I shouldn't do anything crazy. I got to get better at that. And listen, y'all, Paul Usul Muadib Atreides, Duke of House Atreides, is now a full Fremen. Happy Fremen Day. Yes. Happy Fremen Day, Paul. (laughs) Good job, bro. Pretty good. Now, he's got a choice, right? First thought is like, yo, let's go south. I want to see my son. I want to see my mom. But that also kind of comes with this implicit, is he going to go south to claim power and take over Siege Tabor? Stilgar, perhaps subtly, is like, or, you know, you're talking about this 20 thumper journey, or a thumper from here is some Harkonnens. We could go fucking raid them on this giant worm. And Paul's like, "Mm, maybe. What is the choice here, right? It's, do I go and be with my family, but risk the interpretation of I'm trying to like take power from Stilgar? Or do I do the easy maybe fun afternoon thing that doesn't let me see my family, but would be kind of placating any of uh, Stilgar's fears. Paul, uh, though he doesn't want to take Stilgar's power, doesn't exactly clear this up between himself and the people writing, right? He's kind of quiet through this moment, thinking about what he needs to do to best avoid the jihad while also surviving himself. Maybe for reasons we're not sure yet, he he basically lets that assumption that he may be trying to take power kind of sit in the air, and he makes the call. He's like, you know what? We're going south. Stilgar's like, really? Are you gonna? You gonna? Do we have to fight? And he's like, we're going south, man. Yeah, and and partly some of those reasons are because he can't lose face in front of the other fremen. Right. Right. He has to sort of live up to this. You are the legend that was foretold. You are the one, and he can't look weak in this moment. So he really makes this decision, I would think, based a lot on everyone else kind of listening in, right? I imagine Stilgar and Paul are standing at the head of this worm talking, and everyone else is like pretending they're not listening, but totally listening. (laughs) Totally, yeah. (laughs) And Paul needs to save face here. He's the Lisa and Al Gabe. He can't look weak in this moment. And it's great. It's such a good point, especially because... They have this kind of heartfelt exchange, but we see that Stilgar, being a Fremen through and through, his fears, his, his insecurities almost, are Fremen. They're deeply set in Fremen tradition, and he cannot picture a world in which Paul is going south and not going to challenge him to a death fight. <laughs> and it's an insane thread of what Paul needs and what Paul wants and what the Fremen expect. And... I imagine he needs some time to like formulate the plan. <laughs> right. Guy who can see infinite futures needs a little bit of time to like get his speech ready. We get this great quote from Stilgar. Quote, Usul, the companion of my siege, him I would never doubt. But you are Paul Muadib, the Atreides Duke, and you are the Lisan Algabe, the voice from the outer world. These men I don't even know. End quote. Wow. Wow. Oh, I love it. And I I love the way he says that really makes clear his fear. He knows and trusts and will die for this element of who Paul is, but he acknowledges you had a life before Arrakis and you have an identity beyond our friendship that right. you are also beholden to. Yeah. 
In many ways, you will always be an off-worlder. Man, Stilgar looks great, is great, also clearly good head on his shoulders because that's very perceptive and right. <sighs> wonderful. I, again, I, I love that quote so much. Now, their journey south is immediately disrupted. <laughs> They're like, we're going to, you know, you're going to end the road trip. GPS is like 3,000 miles that way. You're like, cool. Within 10 minutes, there's an ornithopter. They're like, oh, God, ornithopter. And it's too far south. It's like too far into the desert. So they're not really expecting it. They have to, because it's unmarked and probably belonging to a smuggler who might talk to people and kind of say what they see. So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to take some of this spice that we have. We're going to layer it on the ground. We're going to sprinkle it on the ground to make it look like a rich sand deposit. And we're going to lure them in. And we're going to fucking teach those idiot off-worlders a lesson. And Stilgar hears that and he's like, oh, okay, hell yeah. <laughs> That's Usul. <laughs> right. Oh, fuck yeah, bro. Like, Let's fucking go, bro. Let's go. Let's teach those idiots a lesson. Paul, half idiot himself because he's from off-world. It's wonderful. What a great little moment of just, uh, again, Stilgar has that moment of, yeah, that's the Fremen way of thinking. <laughs> yeah. All righty. Chapter 43, the final chapter of today's section. We actually jump into the perspective of Gurney Halleck. Hey, hell yeah. Another character that we haven't seen in a while. Yeah. No kidding. He has been with the smugglers for these past two years. He has chosen not to leave Arrakis like many of the other Atreides men that he originally joined the smugglers with. Many of them have left. He has chosen to stay because Beast Rabana is here, baby, and he's going to get revenge. So Gurney is leading this troop of smugglers. They spot the spice and decide, hey, let's move in. Let's harvest this spice, baby. Yeah. Obviously, we know this is a trap. And the minute they arrive, the trap is sprung. Yeah. From the ground, rockets shoot up and destroy a ton of the ornithopters in the sky the smugglers are surrounded all of a sudden by Fremen that have appeared out of nowhere, out of the sand. It's real intense. This will be such a cool sequence to see happen on screen. Oh, so good. And Gurney here is even sort of shocked to see rockets being used by the Fremen. Right. And we know they have rockets because, as Jessica mentioned in an earlier chapter, Paul has not only been helping train the Fremen in battle tactics and in the weirding way, but has also been equipping them with new weapons. And the rockets are seemingly one of these new weapons. And uh, looks like they're quick learners because they wreck these ornithopters with these rockets. I also love, you know, we get these little kernels that we can lead to what may be just my personal headcanon. But my first question with this was, where did the rockets come from? Well, we know earlier Paul went to the Arakeen Palace. And there might have been a storeroom with weapons, you know, off yeah. weapons. We also know that they know that this is a smuggler ship because the Harkonnen Air Force has been dramatically reduced. And we, this is how, <laughs> this is how desert going ornithopters don't have shields because they don't want to draw worms. So rockets, an old fashioned weapon works perfectly. Yep. Which also then underscores Gurney Halleck being like, what the fuck? rockets <laughs> that's crazy but it's it makes a lot of sense and we've actually had these little kernels leading us to this perfect solution that really demonstrates that paul is thinking with everything in mind 
this is really a brilliant tactic through and through. Yeah, super cool stuff. And this fight in classic fashion ends before it even started. The smugglers (laughs) are surrounded. Gurney comes face to face with some Fremen who suddenly says his name. Yeah. And it's Paul. It's Paul. Yeah. Right. Sup, bro. Sup, hey. Gurney. Hey, man. It's been a while. I'm not in the mood. <laughs> Remember that? Remember that, bud? <laughs> Who's in the mood now, bitch? Who's <laughs> in the mood now, bitch? He's like, all right, fair play. Good callback. <laughs> so this meeting is actually, we joke, but this meeting is actually really incredible and and quite emotional. Both Paul and Gurney are a little stunned to see each other. I mean, Paul had realized that Gurney was still alive, partly through his visions, partly through just raiding alongside the Fremen and through reconnaissance. He learned that Gurney was with the smugglers. Right. But Gurney did not know Paul was alive. <laughs> yeah. He's he had no idea. seen a ghost. Yeah. And in fact, there's a quote in this moment from Gurney Halleck, quote, he thought at first he was looking at a ghost image of Duke Leto Atreides, end quote. Wow. Yeah. That is a great way to paint this picture for us, that Paul has grown. Yeah. Paul has matured, not just physically, like he's past puberty at this point, but right. he's <laughs> like he has grown his aura of power and leadership has grown these past two years. We actually get a bit of a physical description as well, because the quote continues, there was a hardness in the expression that reminded Gurney of the old Duke. Paul's grandfather. Gurney saw then the sinewy harshness in Paul that had never before been seen in an Atreides, a leathery look to the skin, a squint to the eyes, and calculation in the glance that seemed to weigh everything in sight. End quote. I love that. (laughs) So good. Love that description. We see that Paul has even taken on some of the physical features of being Fremen, of surviving in the desert. He's no longer got that water fat ass that he used to. <laughs> yeah. Famous. <laughs> Famous for his water fat ass. Yeah. <laughs> Paul Atreides. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't hear their Lisa and Algabe calls over the clap of these cheeks. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> you can probably cut that, but it's funny to me. <laughs> now at Paul's commands. And with like half the smugglers already fucking murked by this point. <laughs> right. Gurney helps stop the fighting. He calls out. He's like, stop the fighting. These are friends. They're allies. And introductions are made between Paul's Fremen and Gurney Halleck. Paul has clearly talked about Gurney to many of his Fremen friends, to his Fidakin, to Stilgar. And so he's like, hey, this is the guy. Hey, this, this is, is the him. guy. <laughs> Gurney in the streets. Gurney in the sheets. This is Gurney. Yeah. The legendary Gurney. And of course, he is one of the most legendary fighters in the Imperium as well. So you can imagine people have just sort of heard of him anyway. Right. Now, we have to stop here and just think about the day Gurney Halleck is having. Right. It has been a day for Gurney (laughs) Halleck. Yeah. His world has been turned upside down. This is not your average Tuesday, folks. He needs a back rub after today. (laughs) He's tense. Right. Now, the chapter continues, and Paul makes introductions between Gurney and Stilgar, two of now his closest friends. And it's clear that 
This sows a little more doubt into Stilgar. There's been this tension building between Paul and Stilgar. There's a great quote in this chapter when Gurney and Stilgar first meet. Quote, there was an air of challenge about the man, and Gurney wondered if it could be a feeling of jealousy in the Fremen. Here was someone called Gurney Halleck, who'd known Paul even in the time before Arrakis, a man who shared a camaraderie that Stilgar could never invade. End quote. Yeah. Really, really fascinating stuff. Again, Leo, you talked about this idea that Paul had a life before Arrakis. Paul had a life before he was one with the Fremen. And this is sudden proof of that. In the flesh, Gurney Halleck standing right in front of him. That's definitely got to make some weird feelings come up for Stilgar. You know, I've been there. I have my New York friends and then they have like, oh, yeah, this is my friend from high school. And I'm like, I, what? I know the New York you. <laughs> the other one's <laughs> exactly. a stranger. <laughs> exactly. Doesn't really make sense. But you have those feelings sometimes of just, this is my best friend's childhood friend. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> right, right. And there's always, inevitably, a little bit of competition there, right? Yeah. You're, you're kind of like, I don't know, like I met Leo in New York. Right. Who the fuck are you, Minnesota boy, <laughs> who supposedly grew up? I actually don't know if you grew up in Minnesota. Though. No, not even close. <laughs> California. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Leo, clearly we're not as close as I thought. Shit. <laughs> Born and raised in Prague, Czech Republic. <laughs> Minnesota. Anyway, back. <laughs> Where did that come from? My parents are in Arkansas. Is that why? <laughs> I don't Is know. It just because I'm so pale? <laughs> like that man <laughs> came out of a bad of I've never mayonnaise. seen a beach. <laughs> <laughs> barely knows what the sun is. <laughs> anyway, back to this meeting between Kearney and Stilgar. Right. The two eventually end up shaking hands and actually complimenting each other upon Paul's request. Paul says, quote, you are two, I'd have be friends, end quote. I love that. I love that too. Yeah. Paul wants his two best friends to also be friends. Totally. Now, in this scene, a worm is sort of lured away so that everyone can quickly head into this Fremen hiding place. And Gurney warns Paul that among the smugglers, there might be Sardaukar. There's some folks in the smuggler troop giving off some real imperial vibes. Right. And so Paul is on high alert. He tells the Fremen to be on high alert. Might be Sardaukar hidden among this smuggler group that they've now captured. And sure enough, once they get into the hiding place, a fight breaks out. And before Paul and Gurney can even have a moment to themselves and chat and catch up, they have to rush into the main hall where two Fremen lie dead, three are wounded, and seven Sardaukar bodies are littered among the fighting. Now, three of the Sardaukar still remain. They're surrounded, knives out, in defensive position, and Paul approaches. He uses the voice to force the captain of the Sardaukar, Captain Aramsham, to submit in like a really epic, like, you will submit. And one of the Sardaukar tries to lunge at Paul and Captain Aramsham knifes his own dude, stops yeah. his own fellow Sardaukar from attacking Paul. And this is their ultimate submission. Now, the two remaining Sardaukar are taken prisoner. And we learn that in the fighting, Stilgar quickly grabbed Chani and pulled her off to the side. 
So we know Chani and Sogar are both safe, something that immediately came to Paul's mind when he saw the bodies littered in the hall. Totally, yeah. We also learn in this conversation that Paul is now for starting to formulate this plan. You mentioned he needed a bit of time to come up with a plan. Yeah. It's starting to come together for him finally. We learned that Paul is going to actually let these two Sardaukar prisoners escape. Interesting. He also asks Gurney about the presence of guildsmen. Don't know where that's going to lead quite yet. And he makes a decision about Stilgar. He will not take over CH to Burr and he will not call out Stilgar in combat. Right. Because, and this, is, this was a really great point that he made here, he tells Stilgar in this moment, why did you protect Chani? You're a Fremen. You're a fighter. Why did you not instantly leap into the fight against the Sardaukar? And Stilgar basically realizes, because of you, Paul, I thought of you. Right. And we learn that Stilgar, if he was called out by Paul, would not be able to raise a knife against Paul Muad'Dib. Paul's legend has grown this much. And so the decision is made by Paul here, that he will not call out Stilgar because Stilgar wouldn't even be able to fight him, and the tribe would lose a huge asset. Right. So they're going to come up with a different plan that doesn't require having to call Stilgar out. He actually sends Chani south. Yeah. Partly because he wants her to be safe, and partly because he wants her to send a message to his mother. He wants Chani to send Jessica up north because they got to come up with a new plan. Jessica, as the tribe's reverend mother, knows their history, knows their culture, understands it deeply. And thus, he needs her advice on how to come up with a plan in which Paul can still rise to power, but not have to battle Stilgar and take him, which has always been the way that Fremen leadership changes happen. The times are a-changing for the Fremen, and it's time for a different future. Okay, so this chapter ends with us inside Gurney's head. And Gurney, at the mention of his mother, is astounded and realizes, oh shit, not only is Paul still alive, Jessica is also still alive. And he's furious in this moment. Gurney, as we know, also thinks that Jessica is the traitor, maybe not as fiercely as Thufir, <laughs> who's maybe been like stewing on it for two years. <laughs> Right. He's been busy doing smuggler shit, but he's also like, oh, no, Paul doesn't realize his mom was the traitor. I need to expose her and let Paul know, and then I need to make sure Jessica dies. So the chapter ends on this thought from Gurney, building a little bit of tension for this coming reunion. Right. A tough reunion ahead for House Atreides. Oof. Well, <laughs> there we have it. <laughs> There 80 we pages and somehow like 12 pages of script. Uh, so dense. So many things yeah. have happened. You know, we have this time with Thufir. We have Paul, who's got a family now and wrote his first worm, which was the biggest anyone has ever seen. We meet Alia. She's weird. We get time with Gurney. <laughs> Everyone's still mistaken about Jessica. And we have Paul and his friend and mentor, legendary fighter and lover, Gurney Halleck. I need a break. <laughs> yeah, same here, buddy. What a dense set of pages. Yeah. So we're going to take a bit of a breather. Right. But don't go anywhere because right after this break, we'll be back with our key takeaways. We're going to get into the Sardaukar and talk a bit more about Alia. Stick around. 
Alrighty, welcome back. It's time to get into our key takeaways. We have two today. Yes. And both of them are juicy and thick. <laughs> Quadruple C thick, baby. Legendary. Let's get into it. <laughs> Legendary. Half a league long. <laughs> Half a league long, these Sardaukar are. So let's talk about the Sardaukar. We have at this point in the book seen them die so often. <laughs> they are yeah, yeah. losing all over the place. Losing every battle, basically, that we see, with one or two exceptions. But it is worth taking a look at them and sort of what we learn about them in this section from the conversation that Fufir and the Baron have. Definitely. So when Dune begins, a reminder, House Carino has been in charge, has been in the seat of power for over 10,000 years. Insane. Yeah. And a big reason for that, a big part of that, is the unparalleled might of the Sardaukar. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, like, to be clear, we talked about the Atreidian men who can maybe best Sardaukar being like Atreides, House Atreides, SEAL Team 6. The Sardaukar as a force are somehow just like that sort of small, elite, specially trained force. But the, the the size of an entire fucking army, like this is, <laughs> like I don't I don't actually know how many Sardaukar there are. There's I'm sure there's a number you could kind of calculate based on people's verbiage. But the point is, it's legions, right? Literal legions of men who individually carry the effective fighting tactics of an elite fighting force, and it's speculated. Part of this ten thousand year rule is the speculation that every single house would have to, other than House Carino, would have to unify their militaristic might. And only then could the Sardaukar just be whittled down over, I'm sure, a battle that would involve devastating losses for everybody involved. Yeah, absolutely. It's wild. Navy SEALs, but legions of them. Main character, Vin Diesel, every single one of them. <laughs> Family. Family. Now- <laughs> Now, their reputation precedes them and in many ways is totally justified. They are brutal, merciless killers who loathe weakness and just casually have this track record of uh, genocide (laughs) in their history. A lot of genocide happening in Sardaukar history over the last 10,000 years. So they are rightfully feared. These are not people to be fucked with. And there is a question here of, how? How? How did you yeah. do that? How do you get a whole army to be like Vin Diesel in Chronicles of Riddick? How did you do yeah. that? <laughs> <Yes>. Right? <laughs> and we actually learn from Baron Harkonnen's ignorance that the answer to that question is not really known. <laughs> Just yeah, most of the Imperium, we can kind of presume. Because apparently, most of the Imperium goes, uh, he enlists them. And then you go, from where? And they go, uh, um somewhere that they came from (laughs) that's the entire that's what the people know no one knows any more than that yeah it's a huge state secret which makes Thufir's deductions here in that chapter we talked about nothing short of brilliant yeah Thufir's really connecting a lot of dots that people for the last 10,000 years have not connected and it's not a spoiler to say that his deductions are 100% correct right yeah he's right like the Sardaukar are trained on Seleucus Secundus on the prison planet. 
So let's actually talk about, in brief, their history, the journey of the Sardaukar over these last 10,000 years. This is basically the history that Shaddam IV doesn't want you to hear, folks. <laughs> that's, your, that's your like clickbait BuzzFeed headline right there. <laughs> he hates our podcast. It's, we're really <laughs> shining a light where he doesn't want it shown. Right. But the Sardaukar people started as the Sardau, sort of a nomadic tribe from the planet Seleucus Secundus. And to be very clear, we are talking like 15, 20,000 years ago. Like yes. this is a long time ago. And they are, in a word, really fucking tough. <laughs> they are durable <laughs> folks. And part of this comes down to the planet that they're from. Yeah, exactly. The fear says in this section, quote, a man who survives Seleucia Secundus starts out being tougher than most others, end quote. <laughs> no kidding. Just surviving on this planet yeah. makes you one hell of a tough bad boy or bad girl, I guess. Or <laughs> bad, bad, bad person. Bad person. Evil person. <laughs> no, uh, tough, durable. Yeah, exactly. So. To actually put that in context a little bit, from the encyclopedia, we know that Seleucus Secundus, the temperatures on this planet can range anywhere from negative 45 Celsius to 60 degrees Celsius, which translated to Fahrenheit is anywhere from a chilly, brisk negative 49 to a balmy, sunny beach day of 140 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> oh, good. From lethal to lethal. <laughs> That's great. <Love> <laughs> So, you know, pick your poison. Frostbite, deadly sunburn. It's a toss-up any given day. And it's a toss-up that every plant, animal, and human has to deal with every yeah. single day. <laughs> so all of that to say, incredibly tough planet. Now, a tough planet is obviously going to result in some tough people. And going back to the Sardau, these tribes were very militaristic. Combat training among Sardau children begins at age six. Sure. Very like yeah. Spartan of them. <laughs> yeah. And most kids didn't make it past age 12. Oof. Rough. Yeah. And the culture was very much based in this militaristic attitude. Kind of leaned into it. <laughs> they really leaned into it. Yeah. Twice a year, these children who were going through this combat training between the ages of 8 and 12, before they graduated into adults, basically, twice a year, they'd be put out empty-handed into the wild. Right. And the goal was you either survive out there and come back to the tribe, or you die and you were not an asset to the tribe. Yeah. A very brutal form of natural selection that the Sardau culture leaned into. And you can imagine how this really weeded out the culture. Many of them died, of course. But the ones who survived, yeah, Thufir's not kidding. Any man who survived Seleucus Secundus ended up tougher than most. And you would in a culture like that. Right. Now, history-wise, there were multiple tribes on this planet, on Seleucus Secundus. But kind of the strongest of them just kept getting stronger. And, you, you know, you would defeat another tribe and then you would take their women or their kids and you would put them through tests and you kind of absorb all the other tribes and eventually you basically have this huge force of incredibly powerful kind of nomadic people. This force ended up going to battle against 
all of the Lance Rad at the time. Amazing. Just everyone else was like, oh, that's that seems like a troubling group of people. So they went to war and they literally drew it to a stalemate. Like just the baffling quality of that, right? This incredible, yeah. Nomadic people basically fighting the whole rest of everyone <laughs> to a stalemate. <laughs> forcing everyone to basically come to the negotiation table and gotta say it house carino the newly formed house carino really i think took the bulk of the cake there because yeah, no kidding this is the treaty of corin which is signed and the leader of the sardaukar people the was once the sardau people the leader of the sardaukar becomes the first padishah emperor of the whole fucking universe <laughs> And this is the foundation of House Carino. What a flex. So over the next thousands of years, the Sardaukar continued to rack up victories. Right. And their myth of invincibility, their legend of ferocity, continues to grow as the empire expands further and further. Now, their original home planet, Seleucus Secundus, eventually they decide to move, the Capilodes move to Chiton. And Seleucus Secundus then is changed into what we now know as the prison planet. Over generations, the Sardaukar sort of dropped their original tribal culture and their nomadic lifestyle as they continue to basically dominate the galaxy, right? They're, they are now the house that controls the imperial seat, and they no longer need to just remain on Seleucus Secundus. But the influences of that culture remain to this day, even 10,000 years later. That is how new ranks of Sardaukar are still trained, the same way that those children way back then were tossed out into the wild to survive or die. That mentality continues throughout Sardaukar training on the prison planet of Seleucus Secundus. And that explains what makes the Sardaukar so fierce and why they rose to such prominence in the galaxy. And why, frankly, it's a huge red flag that someone else might be able to challenge them. Right. Someone like those special troops trained by Gurney Halleck in Duncan, Idaho. That's yeah. a huge red flag when for 10,000 years you have been the top dog. And now suddenly there's a new puppy on the block, baby. <laughs> and it's growing strong. A hundred percent. My man, Clifford. Out here to fuck up some Sardaukar. He's a puppy and he's 12 feet tall. <laughs> yeah, he was raised by Gurney Halleck in Duncan, Idaho. Right. The truth is they trained the fuck out of him. <laughs> he got big. It wasn't love muscle. that made Clifford so big. <laughs> he's got normal sized bones and it's just a very muscular dog. <laughs> so there you go. I mean, that's the Sardaukar. Again, the history that you really do need to keep in mind. When you think about two dead Fremen, three wounded, and seven dead Sardaukar, yeah, this is the context that really makes that sort of number and that ratio shocking. So that's our first takeaway, which leads us into our second takeaway, a gentler topic. How weird is Alia Atreides? <laughs> so weird. But, you know, let's talk about it. Let's break it down. Yeah. And let's yeah. talk about what we learned about her in this section. Yeah, our introduction to Alia is quite abrupt. Yeah. We jump into that chapter with Jessica 
and everyone's just like talking about Alia and she's born and she's around and there's really no smooth introduction to her. She is just there and everyone's talking about her. And in fact, she is a point of tension in this Fremen community. So we wanted to sort of slow down in this takeaway and really dig into Alia and her brief history thus far. I mean, at this point, she's two years old. She is a toddler. Right, right. So it's worth breaking down Alia Atreides a little bit more because the chapter is so quick and there's so much going on at this point in the story that we barely spend time with her. Totally. Now, before this section, we knew that she was, you know, the kind of the kernels of her existence, the very beginnings of her mind were present during the spice agony. We learned that this is an example of sort of a pre-born person, right? Alia, the kernel of her, was there witnessing everything Jessica was witnessing. So that whole life flashed before Jessica's eyes. We knew in premise that it also flashed before the beginnings of who is Alia. Yeah, in essence, her consciousness was awakened well before her birth. Right. Which is terrifying. And she sort of describes this to Hara in this scene for us. She talks about her experience in the womb during that ritual, during the spice agony. And ugh, it sounds horrific. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As you mentioned, she was exposed to those genetic memories that. Ramallah was downloading into Jessica, and Jessica was unlocking within herself all of those memories of the previous reverend mothers. Alia also experienced that. But for her, it was an experience before she was born, before she had a sense of herself, before she knew who she was. She experienced the lives of all these other women. During this conversation with Hara, Jessica actually thinks to herself, quote, what have I born? A daughter who knew at birth everything that I knew and more. Everything revealed to her out of the corridors of the past by the reverend mothers within me. End quote. Ugh. Horrific stuff. I mean, just yeah. imagine your consciousness being awakened in the womb and then having all of these countless memories forcefully downloaded into your little unformed baby brain. Yeah. That's that's horrific. And again, she is unborn. She right. doesn't know who she is. Her consciousness hasn't been awakened. This was triggered because of the spice agony, because of the ritual. And Alia even tells Hara that she lost a sense of who she was for a very long time. Quote, and it was over and I was them and all of the others and myself. Only it took me a long time to find myself again. There were so many others, end quote. Yeah. Oof. Terrifying stuff. Like that, that gives me goosebumps to think about. That sounds terrifying existentially as a 31-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And again. You, you've had 30 years to try and figure out who you are. <laughs> right. Plenty of time. Still working on it. But plenty of time. <laughs> the idea, yeah, of being pre-born and you're like, what is Pickle Rick? And how many seasons of Pokemon are there? Like <laughs> so much stuff to deal with before even having a chance to know who you are. It's yeah horrifying to hone in on that a bit. We learn that from the moment she was born, 
Alia was already a fully-fledged Reverend Mother, like straight-up pinnacle of Benny Gesserit training. And may- maybe not physically, again, baby body. Can't get away from a baby body. But she has literally been doing prana bendu muscular exercises in her spare time, <laughs> which is wild. She's two. <laughs> She's two. Like, yeah, I don't know firsthand how quickly two-year-olds are up and about learning how to move their bodies, but I wasn't doing that until no. still. I still haven't started doing that. So there's, <laughs> there is this sort of, she is very clearly developing quickly. And all of this makes sense, somewhat. I mean, Alia was forced to go through the same spice agony that her mother did. Right. And in fact, it's kind of hard mode because again, she didn't have some, she didn't have a rock. Yeah. She was really awash in it. And you know what? They both survived it. And Jessica's like, I'm shocked that you're sane. And Ali is like, yo, sane. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Yeah, it's a miracle, frankly, that she survived that. And all of that in mind, that miracle in mind, somewhat makes sense why the Fremen are like, yeah, she's a demon. <laughs> Very clearly, <laughs> yes. this yeah. child's a demon. What else can be said about it? She's like quieting babies, talking about planets from thousands of years ago that we basically only know in name. We only, right. you know, we, we talk about it. She was there. She's a demon. Very clearly, she's a demon. We got to get this girl exercised, uh, exorcised, not exercised. She's handling that herself. She's exercising. <laughs> yeah. uh, we need to exorcise. Yeah. I mean, she's a walking, talking toddler who acts like a wise old woman because- in her head, she is many wise old women. Yeah, millions. <laughs> you millions can imagine just women. how weird that would be to come across Demon. Uh, for the other Fremen <laughs> in the siege. Yeah. And what's actually really heartbreaking in this scene is Alia also feels this alienation, right? She understands how weird all of this is. Right. Quote, Alia shook her head. Tears ran down her cheeks, and Jessica felt the wave of sadness from her daughter as though the emotion were her own. I know I'm a freak, Alia whispered. End quote. Uh, uh, so sad. That's so sad. Hearing that from the mouth of a two-year-old baby. <laughs> that's so is, weird and so it's sad. It's so weird and sad, and we joke, but this is heartbreaking. Imagine yeah. being born completely different from any other human in existence. And right. The tribe that you were born into shuns you, fears you, calls you a demon child. It's, you know, you really have to feel for Alia here. And it's so much, I mean, it's more, too, because she has millions of lives who are there, you know, voices. Yeah. Who all think the same thing. This idea of you are not only being kind of bullied and shunned from the outside world, but from the millions of lives that you have lived, basically. I mean, I hear this. Definitely as a reflection of how she's being treated in the siege, but this is also, she is very cognizant, probably more than anybody except for Jessica. She is very cognizant of how bizarre it is for a two-year-old to have such wisdom and to have such control. Yeah. But in this incredibly sad scene, our MVP hurrah jumps right in, folks. Oh my God. Amazing. Uh, In one of the most touching moments in this chapter, Hurrah responds to Alia's whispered, I know I'm a freak. Hurrah responds fiercely, quote, you are not a freak. Who dared say you're a freak? End quote. 
very like parent, you know, very like my kid got bullied at school today. Tell me who the 12 year old was. I'm going to fucking beat him up in the playground energy here. <laughs> right. And when Ali responds, nobody, nobody like actually said freak to my face. Right. Right. Hara just goes full on parent mode activated and ends this conversation definitively by saying, quote, then don't you say it. End quote. Oh, that's love, man. That is full That on. is love. Yeah. Beautiful. I also love to acknowledge that Hurrah is, throughout the early parts of this scene, acting in a way like, yeah, Alia is really weird. <laughs> you know, she herself are, is having that thought. Not necessarily that Alia is a freak, but Alia is really strange. So for then Alia to say, I was called really strange, it is then so charming that Hurrah's first response is not, oh yeah, I kind of act that way, but is, who said that? I will fight to the death for you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. She, it, it's sort of the, lo her love for Alia is so great that she forgets her own maybe participation in that alienation, whether or not she meant to. And of course she doesn't because she loves her. And of course that is also a key part of why Hurrah is so important because she is a Fremen. She does think that Alia is acting a little demon-like. <laughs> She's like, eh, a little right, bit demon-like right. there. But she also loves Alia in ways that transcend words and go straight to action. Yeah. Ah, what a beautiful scene. I love it. And those are our two takeaways for today's episode. The might of the Sardaukar, their history, what makes them so powerful and so feared, and the weirdness of the anomaly that is Alia Atreides and what makes her so different and what makes her feel so alienated, but at the same time, loved by the people around her, the people that are closest to her. So take a breath. We're almost there. We are going to talk <laughs> about our spice morsels. We're going to go into depth with some of these quick, deep lore things. We will do our best to be uh, agile as we move through that deep lore. But first, we're going to take one final break. We'll be back. We're going to talk about some thumpers right after this. Well, welcome back. We are going to talk now about our first spice morsel, thumpers, the beat those worms just can't resist. So <laughs> the day of Paul's trial, Stilgar hands him a thumper. And we've seen these a few times. You know, Paul used one to get across the, the desert, the basin with Jessica and kind of had it on a timer and everything. But this is a good time, I think, to go into a little bit more detail about them. So from the terminology of the Imperium, a thumper is, quote, a short stake with spring-driven clapper at one end. The purpose, to be driven into the sand and set, quote, thumping to summon Shai Hulud. End quote. Now, here's the story of thumpers. Prior to ultrasound scanners, and this is in World, this is in Dune, prior to ultrasound scanners, imperial geologists would use impact hammers to study subsurface rock structures, these this bit of technology called an impact hammer. Now, impact hammers basically worked the same as thumpers, which on most planets is fine. I mean, again, most planets works great. Arrakis has a little <laughs> bit of a pest problem. Uh, and the Arrakis geological survey team was given just the worst job in the galaxy. They're like, oh, all we've got to do is put these impact hammers in the sand 
and uh, find out what's underneath that sand. Well, one of the things underneath the sand are one and a half mile long desert death worms. (laughs) So they summoned what they called a giant serpent. They were like, that's fucking nuts. And most of them died. Only one of them survived and was saved by a Fremen Nabe. And this is Nabe Trekem of Seech Alrab. This Fremen Nabe, he kind of put two and two together and was like, yo, this impact hammer that they used to summon Shai Hulud, that's so valuable. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Yeah. In the past, we used to just jump up and down or something. I don't know. (laughs) So the Fremen immediately adapted this technology and started working with it. Now, in Dune, thumpers, as we see them, are more kind of mass manufactured. They're kind of made of this smooth plastic. And they're used for two things, right? First of all, to lure a sandworm for riding. Or, we see a couple of times, to distract a sandworm when they needed to get away. So you could drop that fat beat 200 meters that way, and that's where the worm's going to go dancing. It's really, in the end, it's like so many of us. So many of us out in this galaxy, you drop a fat beat, we can't help but dance over. All righty. Spice morsel number two. Let's talk about Fremen leadership. A strong theme in today's section was this tension between Paul and Stilgar. Let's take a peek into the mind of the Fremen and how they understand and see leaders within their culture because it's so so fascinating we know from these chapters that leadership and succession has always followed a fairly brutal path right in fremen history if the old leader dies the next strongest person in the tribe rises up to the challenge and becomes the new leader by proving themselves as the strongest and the smartest as stilgar has done many times over right that involves a lot of knife fights <laughs> good <laughs> unfortunately good. Yeah. but Eventually, when someone like Stilgar proves themselves, they become knaves, which is what Fremen leaders are called. And like I said, these knaves are often the smartest and the strongest fighters within their communities, and they've proven it time and time again. According to the Dune Encyclopedia, a knave, quote, had to conform closely to his followers' notion of what a leader should be. Thus, while he had the power of an absolute knighter, I don't know what that word means, actually. <laughs> a knave could easily be challenged by any of his subjects if his behavior seemed at all inappropriate, end quote. Yeah. So it's a delicate balance. You are the leader. You are someone that these people look up to and trust, but you can be questioned at any time. Now, historical records indicate that these challenges, they come all the time. <laughs> A knave has to prove himself constantly, and we even hear about it within today's section, when in Paul's vision, we learned that Chani had to step up and embarrass a couple of these idiots trying to knife fight Muad'Dib, <laughs> the literal main character. They thought they could take him on, and Chani had to embarrass some of them to stop this flow of so many people trying to take on Paul. And Paul's not even the knave yet. <laughs> right. Paul hasn't even challenged Stilgar and become the official leader He's just one of the legend, and people are still challenging him. This idea of Amtal, something we talked about in a previous book club episode. Push a thing to its limits to learn its truth. Push the legend of Paul, Muad'Dib, Atreides to the limits to learn the truth of his legend. 
So these challenges come often. And the encyclopedia sums up Fremen views on leadership pretty succinctly. Quote, Thus, the Fremen held a paradoxical notion of social order. The leader of any group was supreme, but only if everyone who belonged to that group wanted him to be. End quote. And so within Fremen culture, there's this delicate balance of order and anarchy. Right. They had two extreme views on leadership. It was total submission to a leader or a god, while also having the right to challenge said leader or god's authority at any time. And that, that sort of is how their order and anarchy was maintained and how their leaders came to power and also lost power. Really interesting stuff and pretty brutal stuff that, again, may seem foreign to us with sort of Western sensibilities or democratic ideals. Not exactly any polling stations out here in the deep <laughs> right, desert, right. but this is a different culture and this is what they've had to do to survive on the brutal planet of Arrakis and here in the deep desert. This is what must be done. Our last morsel is Steersman Lingo. I love this. This is wonderful. Yeah. During his first sandworm ride, Paul yells out a few words, and as always, when I see a word I don't understand, it angers me and confuses me, so I look into it. <laughs> this gives us a chance to dig a little deeper, and there's some great lore to uncover. So first, we get Paul yelling out, quote, Ah, hi, yo, he shouted in the traditional call. The left side steersman opened a ring segment there, end quote. And shortly after that, we get, quote, Paul shouted, Gerard! The steersman released his hook. The maker lined out in a straight course, end quote. Now, you don't have to go far to find the definitions of these words. In fact, in the terminology of the Imperium, we get very straightforward explanations. Quote, Ach is left turn, a worm steersman's call. Dirk, Right turn, gerat, straight ahead. And then we also have hi yo, which is command to action. So this is do it, <laughs> go, do the thing, right? Yeah. I'm glad the term let's go <laughs> has evolved into hi yo. Hi yo. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll make it happen, folks. Anytime your bro does something cool. Hi yo. <laughs> Hi-yo! Hi-yo! Get out! Hi-yo! <laughs> <laughs> and on that awful note of us screaming into our mics and scaring our neighbors, that brings us to the end of the episode. Yep. Wow. wow. 80 pages, and it feels like a thousand. How did We've done it yet again. <laughs> our sh this is our shortest book club section and our longest recording session. <laughs> I don't know how we do it. It's a miracle. It's, it's a miracle and it's a demon. <laughs> yeah. Every every time I see an episode on the horizon, I'm like, oh no, it's going to be half a league. Fuck <laughs> it's going to be longer than any episode I've heard of. Yeah. <laughs> ah, but what what a fun one. These, these were some incredible chapters. We see where everyone has ended up post time skip. Yeah. We get an understanding of what happened these past two years for all of our characters and how Paul, our main character, has grown. Totally. Yeah. And we're definitely setting up an incredible finale. The pieces are in place, folks. We're almost there. Paul's got a plan. He's got a plan. So 
for our next episode. Your job is simple. Finish the book. Easy one. <laughs> Read it. Read the rest of it. All of the rest all of it. All the Dune. way to the end. <laughs> yeah. You know all of the, that book, Dune? Read the rest of it. It's easy. Yeah, that's right. Our next episode will be the finale. We will finish reading the entirety of the first Dune novel. I can't wait. Can't wait. It's going to be a blast. See you there. Hi-yo! Hi-yo! <laughs> <laughs> Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic. So help spread the word of Muad'Dib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lord Party Podcast Network on lordparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the Golden Path. in many ways, is totally justified. They are... Sorry, Koji just sneezed. (laughs) Bless you, Koji. He's he's asleep. My dude is like on his side, totally knocked out. He's allergic to Sardaukar. Just sneezed so loud.